0: Even if life gets out of control and I've got too many emails and too much work, I've still put the first things first. I've made space before I've filled my life with clutter. And that's what I'd love people to consider doing. What does that mean for them? It won't look the same for you as it is for me, but we have to put in space in our life before work, before clutter, before everyone else's agenda uh, if we're going to live a full and rich life.
1: Welcome to the Juxtapose Journeys podcast, and happy International Cat Day. I'm your host, Eric Spitz, and in this episode, I chat with Daniel C. Daniel is an award-winning productivity author and speaker based in Tasmania, Australia, and the co-founder of the productivity consulting group, Spacemakers. His latest book, Spacemaker, How to Unplug, Unwind, and Think Clearly in the Digital Age, won the Australian Business Book Awards in 2021 for Best Personal Development Book. As the title infers, the book aims to help readers live a happier, healthier, and more productive life by making a habit out of unplugging from technology. Our conversation ranges from how digital overuse affects the human body to practical tips on how to unplug and ultimately how the book Space Maker evolved over 7 years from the original intention of a 20-page ebook. Daniel Even teases the latest book he's working on, so be sure to check out his website linked in the show notes to stay updated on that project. With all that in mind, just sit back, relax, and get ready for Daniel C.'s journey as a space maker. All right, so Daniel, welcome to the Juxtaposed Journeys podcast. And first of all, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to sit down and chat with me. No, thanks for having me on the show, Eric. Looking forward to it. Yeah, for sure. So we are here to talk all about your latest book, Space Maker, how to unplug, unwind and think clearly in the digital age, along with many other things, I'm sure. But what I find interesting is that you went from being a physiotherapist to starting a productivity consulting business. Can you start by talking a little bit about what inspired you to make that shift in your life?
0: Mm, Yeah, it's not a typical shift. I haven't met any other (laughs) physiotherapy, although I don't know many productivity consultants. Generally, it's not a degree that you can study, for example. (laughs) Uh, look. So basically, I went from being a clinical physiotherapist and then treating patients to becoming a deputy manager and then managing a health service. So I'd already made that shift to thinking of myself as a leader and as a manager, and I started to soak myself into reading and learning about how to organize my life and how to lead culture and and shape the organizations that I lived in. But I remember this moment where I realized I'd spent four years at university studying anatomy and physiology and learning how the body worked. And then I'd done lots of study after university to build my patient skills. And then I realized that I was actually spending almost all of my time, no longer treating patients, but reading and responding to email and being in meetings and having to organize projects and to-do lists, deal with conflict. Do you know what I mean? Like I was, I was a manager. And I realized that that's a completely different job than what mm-hmm. I had learned as a technician. And it required a new set of skills. And one of the things that I stumbled upon was the idea that we needed to learn to manage and lead ourselves. And I just became really passionate about learning how to lead myself as a person who led others. And that involves knowing your why and your longer-term calling. It requires that you learn practical skills and habits to manage yourself, like using email and to-do lists and calendars, and, and that you can structure your habits and your practices around your priorities. And I'd put all of that into the broad camp of productivity. And after a number of years, I had learned enough skills where I started to train and coach people around me in a kind of an ad hoc way. And I enjoyed that so much that I ended up running a course called Email Ninja, which is about how to get your inbox to zero each day. Uh, It was a bit of a side hustle just for fun. It was like a creative outlet, which I couldn't experience in a government health agency. But that course slowly built momentum and eventually that side hustle had to become... My business, it was a bit by accident. I never saw myself as an entrepreneur. But, you know, these things happen.
1: <laughs> oh, for sure. No, it's always, it's just kind of a gradual change. Honestly, I'd never envisioned myself as much of a podcaster, but then uh, <laughs> I feel like the pandemic kind of got more of my creative side coming out. I started writing more again, and then that shifted into podcasting because I really miss having those interpersonal conversations, and I got more into listening to podcasts over the years. I'm like, hey, you know, how hard could it be? And then I kind of stumbled my way through it. So... It's funny how those natural things just kind of progress into one another. I mean, it's it's not as it's not as black and white as it always appears. it's There's a lot of change and a lot of evolution involved with it. But, yeah, something I got thinking about, though. I mean, so while being a physiotherapist and speaking on productivity, I mean, on the surface, it almost sounds mutually exclusive, but, You know, there are actually quite a few parallels, I mean, because physiotherapists deal with the human body and, you know, our our brains are affected by digital overuse and, and things of that nature. So I guess, can you can you speak a little bit about some of those terms like neuroplasticity and how our brains are affected by digital overuse?
0: Yeah. And look, there's a lot of crossover between the skills I learned as a physiotherapist and even what I wrote in my book, not just the science background, but the science of habit change. Because essentially being a physiotherapist is helping people change their health story and then change their health behaviors. And now I just translate that to shifting our digital habits and our productivity habits. Mm -hmm. You asked about neuroplasticity. So look, there uh, there was actually a client when I was a physiotherapist that I remember, and we'll call her Susan. Uh, and mm-hmm. she walked into my clinic, and her neck was rotated 30 degrees to the left. She looked like a crab. It was really bizarre. And I'm like, this is an interesting person. And, uh, and she'd had a car crash, a motor vehicle accident, a number of years before. And because her neck was in the brace for such a long time, she ended up basically just walking crooked and she could never get her neck straight. And so I was expecting to see her in lots of pain, but she didn't have a lot of pain. And when I did all the assessments, she could move her neck fully to the left and well, almost fully to the left, almost fully to the right. So there was no physical restriction that stopped her walking with her head forward. And so I'm like, what's going on? And so I got her to hmm. close her eyes and look in front of the mirror, standing up. I said, turn your head as far as you can to the left, and she did that, and as far as you can to the right, and she did that, and I said, put your head straight so you're looking straight on at the mirror, and open your eyes. And she did that, and she opened her eyes, and her head was turned 30 degrees to the left. Hmm. So what had happened, this is, this is a problem not of physical restriction, but of what we call proprioception. So her brain had created a map of her body that thought that her head crooked to the left was straight. And so that's actually not only proprioception. So that's, um, if you close your eyes, you can move your fingers in space and you can tell what your fingers are doing without looking at them. So that's the ability of your joints to give feedback to your brain. But on top of that, we have what we call neuroplasticity, where your brain creates a map of the world and gives you your sense of reality. And hers had gone skew-whiff, hers had gone crooked. Eventually, I taught her to practice with her head straight, getting feedback using her eyes, and she eventually learned to walk straight again. But I think that's a good analogy about how the digital age, particularly post-COVID, has changed us from the inside out. Because this lady didn't really understand why she was seeing the world crooked. And I think a lot of us are starting to see the world crooked because our brains are changing from the inside out. And that's called neuroplasticity. I think that answers your question. At least there's a connection between physio <laughs> and productivity.
1: Yeah, no, that that was great. No, I I, I didn't know any of that going into this. That's so interesting, though. And I think the parallel between post-COVID is a really good one, too, because what was abnormal before has become the new normal. Like, it's it's our, our scope and our range has varied so drastically. I mean, COVID kind of forced our hand. It forced a lot of employers to have people work from home. And then now employers are offering either fully remote positions or hybrid positions. And that's becoming the new normal when that really was not as prevalent prior to COVID. So that's a really interesting story. And that's, wow, that's that's wild. But <laughs> I mm. guess- uh, There's inter- Yeah. Oh, sorry. Go for it. When,
0: when you look at the sleep debt research, it's similar to my story of Susan in the sense of if you have sleep debt, so if you get, let's say, four to five hours of sleep, maybe even six hours of sleep a night, four weeks on end, you gain this accumulative effect where- you are sleep deprived, almost as if you'd stayed up all night. But what's interesting about sleep debt is when people are studied, they say they're tired, but they don't have any clue about how tired they are. They lose their ability to to recognize how unproductive they are and how inefficient they are at work and how many mistakes they're making compared to when they're not sleep deprived. So sleep debt causes us to lose our ability to self-reflect on our own behaviors. And this is what we're seeing with digital overload, at a broader level, just like Susan couldn't tell that her neck was twisted when she thought it was straight, and just like a person in sleep debt doesn't realise they're inefficient and distracted and unproductive. I think the new normal, we're starting to get the signs and symptoms of digital overuse. You know, I feel like I'm more anxious. I'm always running to stand still. I can't read a book anymore like I used to. I'm distracted. I'm thinking in sound bites. I'm missing face-to-face contact, but I don't have the energy to get out and actually have a coffee with someone because I feel comfortable being at home in my PJs. You know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. we're kind of experiencing the the side effects, just like she knew she was crooked, but she couldn't work out why. And and I think this is what's happening in our society at the moment post-COVID.
1: Oh, definitely. I mean, uh, as someone who is very chronically sleep deprived all the time, I, I think there's a, there's a lot that I took from that that uh, I, I mean, I definitely think you're speaking a lot of truth there. I mean. And it's it's bad. I, I'm not proud of the fact that I am sleep deprived and, you know, only sleep for probably about half the amount that I should on a regular basis. And that kind of became my new normal. Based on all that, I'm sure I'm not even aware of how sleep deprived and, and exhausted I truly am. So, yeah, that's uh that's something. To well, you're a high fun- you're a about. high
0: functioning sleep debt addict then, Eric, because your <laughs> questions are very cogent. So you must do better than me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm just an anomaly, I guess. I don't know. So. <laughs> oh man, but uh, but no, you mentioned uh, digital overuse, and so I, I guess I'm going to segue there uh, for a minute. So your book, Space Maker: How to Unplug, Unwind, and Think Clearly in the Digital Age, is all about making space in your world for the things that truly matter. And what I find interesting is that it was only meant to be a 20-page ebook originally, but then it took seven years to publish. So how did the original idea evolve during that time period?
0: Yeah. So look, it's probably nine years ago I started writing the book. I released it one year ago and it took seven years to write and publish. And look, I just had this sense right from the beginning. I I, I remember the first time I got my iPhone and I looked at this device and realized how unbelievable it is. <laughs> like it is just, it's <laughs> extraordinary, this device and what it can do and how it can expand our, just our power and our communication. And and I, I was scared, actually, because I'm quite an addictive person in many ways, and I'm a Taipei personality. I love working. I love starting new things. And and I knew at that moment that this this was something I had to be careful about because it was so amazing. I don't know if that makes sense. I just had this almost (laughs) prophetic awareness that this was going to change my life. Mm-hmm. And I soon started to see that there were some amazing things through my use of technology, but some unhelpful patterns and behaviors started to develop very, very quickly around how often I use my phone. And I think I just could foresee the problem of always being online and the cost it might have on other areas of my life. And so I started a habit where I turn off my phone one day a week in order to disconnect from work and from the activity of the online world. And I wrote a blog post and that post made waves because at the time no one was talking about Facebook you know addiction and Instagram overuse and no one was talking about Zoom fatigue like none of none of that was a conversation nine years ago and I started that conversation and I thought well people are curious about this idea that maybe you could use your phone too much and Mm -hmm. so let's write a 20-page how-to guide on how to you know not start and end the day with your phone, but have some space. how to make sure you have real relationships. you know some of the stuff that is still the core of my book many years later but But I realized very quickly not only was there a lot more content in that than a twenty page ebook, but that the problem with digital technology, particularly coaching clients and staying to see more of the research you know of Emerge over many years, I realized that actually it's really simple to say to someone, turn off your phone for a day a week. I mean, that's not complicated, you know, press one button and don't look at your phone. But like, you're probably having heart palpitations now just thinking about the idea. Do you know what I mean? Like, the the, the idea of disconnecting or unplugging in, in particular ways throughout our day or our week or our year, it's not complicated, but there is something in our relationship with the online world that tethers us relationally to our devices and we have emotional physical neurological responses to that kind of relationship that we've invested in Mm -hmm. and unless you change our paradigm or our story of technology you're you're not going to be able to sustain healthier more balanced practices in around technology so I like how a guy called Jamin Fraser says that behavior is at the end of the assembly line of the factory of our beliefs. And so the book ended up becoming a book because I realized I needed to dedicate dedicate a lot of time to really research deeply what is our story or paradigm of technology? How do we change that? How do we orientate our life around True North principles and then the 20-page ebook is probably about a 40-page section at the back of the book. Very, very practical tips and tricks on how to practically unplug, assuming that you're online almost all the time. It's not an anti-tech book, but how do you invest in space in the things that really matter, which can't happen online, like mm-hmm. deep thought, deep relationships, and <laughs> deep rest?
1: Oh, definitely. No, I think you brought up a, a ton of good points there. I mean... Taking a day away from, from your phone, to your point, I mean, is it sounds easy to do to just click the button and, and turn your phone off, but it's it's so much harder to actually do because I feel like you have that – you can never really feel totally detached from it because you have all those thoughts in the back of your head of like, oh, what if somebody's trying to contact me It's or if it's an emergency or somebody – needs to or if someone has a question about this work or project that you're working on or something and I feel like the same thing could be said about you know the the culture in the U.S. too with the in the workforce because I mean the, the U.S. as a whole I mean we're, we're very overworked and you know and uh, <laughs> we're mm-hmm. very known for, for like being a very overworked and and I feel like it's almost hard for people to take sick days for very similar reasons too because they're like Oh, the whole company's gonna fall apart if I miss a day type thing, and you almost feel guilty for taking taking a sick day even if it's needed. It's it's so strange, but it's like it's almost like that's our normal and that feels abnormal to do to Yeah, so I, I guess it all is about reshaping what our normal is and what it should be and that whole paradigm shift. So no, you brought up some great points there.
0: Yeah, I mean you you've just brought up a story, you know, a story around <laughs> what work means mm-hmm. and my role in work. And how I'll let the team down if, I, if you know, I've got, maybe mm-hmm. I've got COVID or I don't know, I've got the flu and I, I turn up to work and, and the identity that I form around me being a good worker or a good colleague or the um, beliefs I have around who I am when I produce. Mm-hmm. So again, even in that example, can you see that the behavior of choosing to or not take a sick day when you're genuinely sick? is actually mm-hmm. shaped by your cultural and personal beliefs. And unless mm-hmm. you can understand them at a deeper level, you're not going to be able to just say to someone, just take a sick day when you're sick because there's something else going on behind that. And that's, that's what I mean by why I wrote this book as a book. It's mm-hmm. the same thing with technology and our relationship with it.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I think it's something everyone listening can benefit from, including myself, because I'm definitely guilty of doing that, of biting off way more than I can chew and then basically reaching a breaking point, And then that being finally the realization of, oh, I, I need to take a break. <laughs> like, so mm-hmm. it's something I'm trying to get better at with uh, with get, having balance and whatnot. But. Actually, speaking of which, um, because obviously you're, you're a very busy person yourself. I mean, um, you mentioned Email Ninja earlier, and uh, you have List Assassin, Priority Samurai. So how do you effectively find balance in your life to explore pursuits such as those previous ones I mentioned and spend time with family and whatnot? I know you already mentioned about shutting off your phone, but there are, are there any other practical tips that you utilize?
0: Yeah, look, there's lots of tips. and uh, I mean, even pre-writing this book. -hmm. The practices that I've adopted to the online world were in my life already because I nearly burnt out. I got very mm-hmm. close to burnout in my early 30s. Like you, I, I just love doing stuff. I love new ideas. I take, to, you know, I've certainly had times in my life where I've taken too much on. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I love the quote from Richard Bark, who says, we teach best what we most need to learn. I think the reason I know so much about space making, the reason I'm so passionate about deep thought and deep rest and making space to address your inner life is because <laughs> it's been a wrestle for my whole life and I suspect it'll be a wrestle for the rest of my life. But I keep learning new things within that space. By nearly burning out, I needed to put in patterns and practices in my life where, yeah, I I didn't just work to exhaustion, but I put holidays in first. Mm -hmm. At the start of my year, I would book in my holidays before I book in my work, and I would Mm -hmm. prioritize time with my family. I'd prioritize exercise and time to think deeply and strategically rather than just rush into stuff. You know, all those kind of practices have, have held me in good stead. And I'm really happy to talk about some practical tips that will help listeners. But I suppose before I do, I, I do want to acknowledge that I'm not, you know, this zen, calm person that walks <laughs> through life. I mean, I'm a business owner. I have three kids. I've got a house. I live in community. I, I work. I volunteer a lot with my church community. I've got a few side hustles. Do you know what I mean? So, so there's a lot going on in my life. Mm-hmm. But But the practices in the book and putting the most important things in first has been incredibly useful to stand me in good stead. Mm-hmm. The, the irony, if I'm really honest, is I had a burnout period a long time before I wrote the book. I nearly burnt out writing the book. And there's a chapter in my book about when I put my... I made a decision to put my book down for more than a year and stop writing. That's mm-hmm. partly why it took seven years, because I was no longer living by the principles in the book. And I was becoming you know sleep deprived and I had no space and I was becoming just a pain around my family. And I recognized one moment where I went downstairs in a huge temper fit and I kicked the door open and there was a hole left a hole in the door, basically, in my bedroom door. And I'm like, this is this is terrible. Like I can't be writing to people about making space if my life has no margin. So I created margin for a year and you know and and the irony is, you know, then I then I got my life back into balance. And now I've produced this award-winning book. It's actually nominated for another national award last week. I'm speaking all around the world, which is exciting, and more and more work's coming in to help people think about and wrestle with digital overload. But in all honesty, probably the last month I've had less space in my life than I've had for a long, long time. And I'm like, how am I going to balance helping people learn about space when I'm now again, once more, wrestling with overwork and... You know what I mean? I still have the practices in my life, so that's why I'm healthy, but mm-hmm. but I also want to speak with integrity. <laughs> I don't want yeah. to be the space maker who, uh, you know, it's a bit like Tim Ferriss, the you know, four-hour work week. There's no way he works four hours a week. Like, you know, there's, there's <laughs> got to be some integrity in the way you speak, and I'm wrestling with that with my own life. So I don't know if that's worth sharing, but <laughs> it's, the of, it's the reality of the busy work we live in.
1: Yeah, definitely. And you brought up some really great points there too. And I praise you for having the self-awareness of being like, okay, I need to take a step back or put things on hold, get into a better headspace, you know, before I, I continue working on this book because I'm getting burnt out. because that that's something very important to recognize for sure. And, and something I'd, you know, I, I try to practice or I, I, I can struggle with sometimes as well, or just kind of having that balance. But yeah, and, and life is definitely fluid too. I mean, priorities and situations and things are always changing. So you may be really balanced at one point in your life then you get off center a little while later because of other things that came into your life unexpectedly or whatnot then you have to reassess and it's it's a constant ebb and flow change i suppose but but yeah having the the tools and the practices at your disposal and having the knowledge to do that will will put you in the best position ultimately so with spacemaker the the book in mind what would you say is your ultimate goal of your book i guess in terms of yourself or just what you hope your readers will gain from it
0: yeah i really want people to live intentionally. Mm-hmm. And by that, recognizing that space is really, really valuable. I think we have so much information in our world today. There's, you know, There are opportunities. For many of us, we almost have enough money, but we don't have any space to enjoy life and to rest and to, to live the lifestyle we want. While the book is about technology, because unless you reframe tech and reframe your tech habits, it's very unlikely you'll truly live your own script rather than the script of the world or the you know shareholder of Silicon Valley tech companies you know that they're, they're determining a lot of your habits but ultimately I want you to make space I want you to live your own life I want you to be intentional and and that's really exciting you know mm-hmm. and ultimately that's I love what you said about the seasons it, there are seasons you know like Stephen Covey says there are times to be intentionally unbalanced and I think that's okay mm-hmm. however the way I look at the world now is It's almost like a a glass and imagine you fill it up with water and then just keep filling it up and you fill it up and fill it up and fill it up and it's overflowing and it's stripping down the table and (laughs) and I don't know, it's starting to soak the carpet. Like that's the context we live in. We will always have more than our cup, our capacity, our Mm -hmm. energy can hold. And there are always more options now in the digital age than you'll ever get done in your whole life. I mean, Mm -hmm. Oliver Berkman's got a great book called 4,000 Weeks, which talks about that same idea. And so if that's the context that we're going to live in forever, more than we can possibly get done, then how do you live in that environment? And I think the solution is not necessarily balance. It's awareness that life is messy and you won't get it all done. And therefore, what do you put in that glass first and what do you let flow out? And so even in a busy time like I have now where I have more work than I'm keeping up with, Mm -hmm. I will always have a day off with my kids and family on a Saturday like uncompromisable. Even if my inbox is out of control and I feel like I just have to do more work, I close down my computer at 6 o'clock on a Friday night and I open it up on 6 o'clock, you know, on a Saturday night if I have to work at Saturday night. But I have a full 24 hours, digital free with my kids. I always start and end the day without tech, so I have some time at the end of the day to think and process the data in my life and to think about my emotions from the day, to talk to my spouse rather than us sitting on our phones talking to Siri, you know, I mean, to <laughs> looking at Google, <laughs> having a relation, making love with our phone rather than each other, you know, and, and I wake up in the morning and I pray and I reflect and I, I think about the day. It may only be for 10 minutes, but I I no longer reach for Gmail and start the day that way. I make a bit of space. Mm-hmm we always have digital free meal. That's really sacrosanct. In fact, the last big argument we had in my family is because someone made a phone call and a family member answered the phone and I lost it, you know, and I shouldn't have, I should have been more polite, but it was like breaking a family value. You know, we eat together Mm -hmm. and tech does not interrupt our dinners. Uh, So there's, Mm -hmm. and I exercise a few times a week without a podcast in my ears, you know, so Mm -hmm. it's not like a lot of life, but there are intentional patterns that go in first about rest, thought and relationship. And I won't even let like a great key, you know, conference, keynote, invitation take over that. If someone wants to have me speak during my annual leave, which is locked in a year in advance, the answer is automatically no, because rest comes before work. And I think mm-hmm. with those priorities in mind, I find that even if life gets out of control and I've got too many emails and too much work, I've still put the first things first, Mm -hmm. I've made space before I've filled my life with clutter. And that's what I'd love people to consider doing. What does that mean for them? It won't look the same for you as it is for me, but we have to put in space in our life before work, before clutter, before everyone else's agenda, uh, if we're going to live a full and rich life.
1: Oh, yeah, I agree completely. You, You hit on so many great points there. I mean, and it's something I really need to get better about myself, but just reprioritizing and making time for myself and really what's important in life because... As I'm sure a lot of people out there, I have a nasty habit of being very goal objective, which is fine and everything, but unless I schedule time to take for leisurely activities or just relaxing, unwinding, unless I schedule it in, I won't take it type thing. I'll just find another task to do to try to get ahead on something else. And then obviously that's not sustainable. That's why people burn out. Yeah, I think reshaping you know, your, your normal and just figuring out and reprioritizing what's important to you and really not buckling with that. And, you know, like scheduling that time for yourself and what's important to you truly is important. And, and yeah, I think you hit on some great points there. And, Can I, and I say I'm
0: very much like you in that Eric, <laughs> that, you know, like my wife is this beautiful relational empathetic person and she loves, you know, she, she'll hang out with friends or she'll rest because she enjoys those things <laughs> Whereas like I'm a type A structured productivity kind of consultant. Mm-hmm. Who I probably came out with a to-do list, you know, when I was born <laughs> and, and I love ticking things off my list. So so for me, what I'd mm-hmm. recognize, it's not a bad thing. I'm it, it just is the way I get stuff done is I schedule it. If I want to get a project done, I break it down, I schedule it, I next action it. Mm-hmm. And I just realized I had to treat my personal life the same way because of my personality type. And so, yeah. I, you know, that's why I schedule my holidays That's why I schedule my day off. You know, like someone once said that spontaneity, unlike its name suggests, often needs to be structured because the Mm -hmm. only way I'm going to have 24 hours of unplanned, unstructured time where I wake up and say, what will we do today? Is if I've time blocked time and said nothing's entering that space. (laughs) Does that make sense? So I have to structure my spontaneity, you know. And so that (laughs) may not sound very human if you're like one of those nice, (laughs) enjoyable people to hang out with who are just relational and not kind of tasky. Mm-hmm. That's the way I'm wired, and so it's not a negative thing. Uh, you go with your strengths.
1: Oh, definitely. Yeah, e- even a
0: bizarre thing. This, you know, this will make this will put who I am in context, and people may turn <laughs> off turn off the uh, podcast right now. But uh, I, I, I'm not very empathetic. You know, I, I'm a I'm a Clifton Strengths Coach. It's like the Gallup Strength Finder, and like my th- I've got some great strengths, but like empathy is like low down. All the relational things are a bit low down. And yet I I love my wife and I want her to feel cared for and encouraged. And I tried for years spontaneously saying nice things to her. And sometimes I'd buy flowers and do those kind of things, but just wasn't very good at it. And then one day I thought, actually, I'm just going to have to use my strengths to cover for my gaps. Like one example is I put on my to-do list every Monday morning, text something encouraging to my wife. It's a recurring to-do. And every Monday at some stage, I tick off the task, which is, hey, you know, I'm missing you today. It's so good to be married to you. I don't know, kiss, kiss, hug, hug, or something like that. (laughs) And she knows, she knows now, because, you know, every Monday it happens around the same like, you know, time spot. So she she knows the reason it's happening, but honestly, she loves it because that's my way of following through with what I want to do, which is to have empathy and encouragement, but I'm a structured guy, and so I have to schedule it. And And I think mm-hmm. that's okay. You just have to go with the way you're wired. And that's for rest, relationships, anything.
1: Oh, definitely. And, oh, my gosh, Daniel, I think we're wired in, in very similar ways because I'm a very goal-oriented person as well, very structured. But I'm also empathetic, But and that just drains me more than I can ever explain. But Mm -hmm. um, I think recognizing our own strengths is very important as well. And just kind of utilizing those and reshaping things based on how we best respond to things. I mean, to your point and to my point, if I want to take some time for myself, I need to schedule it in, even being spontaneous and it's so strange because if I have days to where I get thrown off schedule and I do something spontaneous but get further behind in other tasks, even though I'm having fun in the moment, I get frustrated later because it like <laughs> wasn't in the schedule, which sounds ridiculous to say because it's like I had fun, you know, just a few hours ago. Why am I frustrated right now? It's just because it, it wasn't in my schedule. I I never thought I was that person. I never did until <laughs> until, until I started recognizing that and having those realizations later. <laughs>
0: oh, I live- I live in community, which means I, I bought land with another couple, and we bought two <laughs> houses, and we share life together. We've done it for more than a decade. But they're all like everyone in the block except for me is not a planned like person. They're all relational mm-hmm. and more spontaneous. You know, I remember once texting them saying, "I don't think we've had you know fun, much fun lately. How about we schedule some fun in together?" And I was you know quite serious, and that they just mm-hmm. made fun of me for months. Like, let's schedule some fun. <laughs> 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 But it's like, I don't know, surely you can schedule fun. But anyway, you can turn off the podcast again if I'm too weird. But uh, you know, but it sounds like we're both cut from the same cloth.
1: Oh, exactly. Like, hey, guys, come on, it's six o'clock. We should have stopped having fun two hours ago. <laughs>
0: now, it's, now it's time to do emails. Yeah, that's right.
1: Oh, gosh. No, we are definitely <laughs> wired the same way. Actually, speaking of which, I was uh, I was reading your latest blog post on Space Makers titled How to Overcome Perfectionism by Making Purple Pancakes. And I think it's a great way to summarize the constraints perfectionism can have, traits that I'm definitely guilty of myself. So do you have any practical tips for how to let go and tackle projects kind of out of your comfort zone and kind of get away from the perfectionist mentality every once in a while?
0: Mm, that's a great question. Look, in the past, I would have just given you my advice. I would have to say, though, I think it depends on, again, your strengths and personality, because the way we need to tackle perfectionism is very unique to who we are and what's driving Mm -hmm. it. I do think perfectionism is something that comes from insecurity, and it's something that is primarily driven from the inside out. So it's less about the tasks, and it's more about your identity and the story that you have, again, and where you find your meaning or... How you assess what's finished and what's not. And that's quite different for each person. So firstly, I would say if you find yourself like paralyzed by perfectionism, meaning that you can't start things or you can't finish things because they have to be perfect, well then it's probably worth having a bit of like coaching or silent reflection or some personality type stuff to work out what's the thing behind the thing, Mm -hmm. but in terms of actually tackling perfectionism, I, I do think knowing just being happy with enough is really important realizing mm. it's better to give something a go particularly if you're someone who stops starting new things or won't you know take on risky things because they have to be perfect you just have to get started and mm. like i won't describe the purple pancake thing in detail but essentially <laughs> it's about i had a dream about the idea that i needed to to make pancakes and i didn't know how to and when i finally gave it a go they ended up being purple and yet they tasted okay. And for me, it's this, oh, I'd, I'd rather make a purple pancake. So something that is a pancake, but it's not perfect than to never start myself. And that was a complete, it was an identity story shift that happened in me that then led to me being an entrepreneur. Basically, when I have an idea, I start it. And... Mm-hmm. I don't overthink it anymore and I've learned to learn on the run, to, to make the first steps and to be okay when things don't work out, to to stop projects as well when they're not working and to say sorry when I make mistakes and all that stuff is probably about character development more than task development, but they always interplay off each other.
1: Oh, definitely. Yeah. No, and I love that description of your dream as I was reading the blog post because yeah, there's so many great lessons and parallels you can draw from that. And I mean, I feel like this podcast are my purple pancakes essentially because I mean, I didn't know what I was <laughs> doing when I first started. I still don't know what I'm doing, arguably. <laughs> because but I, I learn a little bit after each recording, after each episode you know, even though I'm not like an audio engineer or anything like that, I was I'd be just kind of learning as I go. And but yeah, if I would have waited until I was perfectly ready, and I felt fully confident, I probably never would have started. And I feel like anyone actually a lot of guests who I've interviewed on the show will say pretty much the same thing. I mean, Anyone who's out there who's written a book or tackled a task like that, I mean, in the very beginning stages, I didn't know what they were doing. And they just kind of <laughs> figured it out along the way. And that's, I mean, that's ultimately mm. how things get done. And then as you get doing it and get more comfortable with it, that's when you just kind of build your confidence and kind of get out of your comfort zone more, start tackling more things. And, I mean, just from your blog posts and everything, too, just from getting out of your comfort zone, I mean, I saw that you started a book club. I mean, you... Uh, you left a, a job to start a company and like um what you mentioned before sharing land. I mean just so many things came about from it, just from just kind of saying, Hey, I'll figure it out as I go type thing.
0: <laughs> yeah, definitely. You know, one of the many moments that shaped my perfectionism or my journey out of perfectionism mm-hmm. is like, I was 14 years old, and this is a long time ago, obviously. And I went to Disneyland, actually. I went to America, which is amazing. Oh, nice. <laughs> and and I was in Disneyland, and they had this E.T. show, you know. And Oh, mate, sorry, I'm wrong. It was Universal Studios, but it was okay. during the same trip. Mm-hmm. And I was at Universal Studios, and they had this E.T. thing, and it was like, oh, this amazing technology, you know. There's this green screen, and if you stand in front <laughs> of it, you can get rid of the background and change it. Like, you know, cutting-edge <laughs> technology back then in, like, the early, late 80s, I think. <laughs> So there was this bicycle like Elliot used to ride on ET, you know, mm-hmm. when he, he rode over the moon and the presenter said, is there a 14 year old boy in the crowd who wants to come up and sit on this bike and ride and, and you're going to be on television and you're going to see yourself, you know, ride over the moon with ET. And I was like so excited, but I was like 13 and like 10 months. I'm a rule keeper. And I I didn't put up my hand, but I really wanted to. And my dad was like, put up your hand, put up your hand. I'm like, oh, I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) Anyway, another kid, another kid put up his hand and he got up and it was awesome. He rode and you could see him fly over the moon. And the whole time I just wished that was me. And I remember thinking about that, reflecting on my emotions as as much as I could as a 14 year old and (laughs) thinking I should have put up my hand. And Mm -hmm. next time... Next time there's an opportunity and I can put up my hand, I'm just going to do it, even if I don't know the outcome. And, and I try to do that, you know, when I'm when I'm not sure. And yet if my gut says I want to go with something, you know, and obviously it has to be morally right and it has to be ethical and logical enough. But I, I want to be that kid who puts up my hand and gets on that bike. I don't want to be the one who stands back. And that's partly about perfectionism being, you know, a, a change in the way I see myself.
1: Oh, definitely. Actually, I was I was just having a very similar conversation with a previous guest I had, uh, Fred Joyle, about just the idea of almost like it's not so much the things that we go out and, and do. It's, it's the things that we don't do that really haunt us instead of just going out and, and failing miserably. It uh, haunts us more if we don't ever try it to begin with. And that's kind of how his path was shaped on getting out of his comfort zone more. He said, you know what? If an opportunity comes up, I'm going to take it type thing. And we even went down a rabbit hole about like, you know, me going out and singing karaoke. Like, are there better singers at this bar? I'm sure there definitely are, but that are in this, you know, in the crowd, but they're just not going up and singing, even though they could, they're far better than I am type thing. But it's, it's just interesting how that all goes. And, uh, and, and (laughs) I guess the I can't imagine there's a
0: better singer in the bar than you, Eric. I (laughs) want to hear you sing. Come on, go for it. no.
1: My, my stage presence, I think, uh, pulls me through it for my lack of voice. So I, that's, that's that's the way I look at it. So at the end of the day, hey, if people are entertained by it. And I mean, I have fun doing it. So um, <laughs> that's all that matters, I guess. I want to, uh, I guess, take a step back. Because something I was uh, thinking about while I was formulating questions and everything about the ever-changing world we're living in. Obviously, technology is very different today than it was when even I was growing up. And I don't consider myself to be that old. How do you think technology should be utilized for younger generations? I mean, is for example, is there like a certain age you think kids should be getting a phone? A- has that changed at all your stance with that over the years with the changing of technology? I know that's kind of a very loaded question, but.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's an important question. I'm actually writing a second book right now. Oh, probably nice. going to be called Raising Humans, which is about how to make good tech savvy parenting decisions for kids between the ages of five and 12. So hopefully that'll be released in, by the end of the year. Nice. And and they're big questions. So, look, all I can say is go slow. The the research that's coming out, I I honestly think we'll look back in 10 years, and it'll be like, like I remember when in the 70s, there, there were still doctors in Australia who you'd go to their surgeries they'd, they'd have like ashtrays and they'd be smoking cigarettes in doctor surgeries. Now we knew, mm-hmm. we knew cigarettes were bad for us in the 60s and 70s but we did it anyway and I think we're going to look back and think why did we give Minecraft to like two year olds mm-hmm. and why did we give our phones to eight year olds without filters without contracts without the, the types of checks and balances that are needed both for their mental health and their brain development. We're definitely seeing more and more research coming out that suggests that we are just giving our kids devices too early and it mm. is actually hindering their mental development, their, their, their brain development. They, they're literally not developing healthy brains. I think there's been an 800% increase in ADHD since the iPhone was released. And obviously, and there's also addiction related to a whole lot of digital overuse. So I'm not saying tech is bad, not at all. And I'm not saying we shouldn't use tech. I mean, my kids clearly use some technology. So for zero to five, I mean, the recommendations, I think, are no screens at all for the first two years, which no one follows whatsoever, uh, and then no more than an hour a day after that. But I would even say, where possible, just don't give your kids an iPad because Mm -hmm. it's that interactive, fast-moving, engaged new media technology that seems to have the most impact on kids' mental development. It it hyper-stimulates their brains it increases their adrenaline like their adrenaline and dopamine production it's like minecraft is classically designed as well as obviously fortnite and all you know everything and you know, mm-hmm. then you go to like the the huge games like world of warcraft i mean they're all designed to create these fight and flight responses that keep you know that increase your pupil dilation that make your heart race that make you want to deeply engage you know to create a fort and protect yourself from monsters you know that they're, they're designed to speak to our brain stem our lizard brains the emotional parts of our brains and by doing that and immersing yourself in so much of that it actually reduces the the front parts of our brain that the cortex the prefrontal cortex the thinking parts of our brain don't develop as well so and the bottom line is let your kids develop into healthy humans first before you give them too much technology they will catch up on tech in high school, but where possible, particularly in the very young ages, try to significantly reduce engaged media like iPads. And as they get older, be, be really thoughtful about how and when you give your kids a phone and, and the story behind why you're doing it. Mm-hmm. That's not to judge any parent who is, who is listening thinking, oh my gosh, I've known completely the opposite, <laughs> because you're the norm mm-hmm. and so it's, it's not a judgment, but we've been misinformed. And I'm trying to help parents get the information they need to make better decisions because our kids' brain development is so important. And it will lead them to being harder or more easy teenagers (laughs) based on when you start snowballing their tech habits.
1: Oh, yeah, definitely. Oh, man, you brought up so many good points there. And, yeah, I was watching a documentary somewhat recently. The documentary I'm referring to is called The Social Dilemma which is currently streaming on Netflix. It's an eye-opening documentary to watch if you're interested in learning more about how technology use affects us psychologically. If you're more of a reader, check out Jaron Lanier's book 10 Arguments for Deleting Your Social Media Accounts right now, which is also fantastic. Funny enough, Jaron Lanier is even interviewed in The Social Dilemma. Anyway, I digress. Let's get back to Daniel and I's conversation. Yeah, those studies are definitely alarming and it's sad because, you know, kids younger and younger are getting on Snapchat or something and those filters Mm. are almost becoming their new normal and they have a lot of, you know, body image issues and things of that nature. Like things like that have skyrocketed too and it's just, I don't know, I mean, you know, thinking of my own life in terms of my own path and journey and everything, like I'm 31 years old and... I didn't get my first phone until I was in high school and I had like one of those big Nextel bricks and stuff like that. Like it basically just only called people. I wasn't really playing games or anything on it. But I don't know, like it's it's crazy though, because uh our world has just changed so much over the years and it was really eye opening for me because in kind of the in between years after graduating college and looking for a, a big adult job and everything, I started substitute teaching and you know, like tablets became the new norm and some of these like young classrooms and that like that's how kids learn primarily today and they have signs posted and like the junior highs of it being like a red zone or a yellow zone in terms of like phone usage like if it's a red zone they can't have phones at all type thing if it's a yellow zone like under special permission type thing i i came to notice that everyone was so glued to their phones at such a young age and i couldn't even wrap my head around it like i was living that not even that long ago and things have changed so much <laughs>
0: Yeah. And and you just had a different experience. I mean my, my heartbeat is like I, I, I want our tech I want our kids to to be the head of culture and not the tail of culture. Mm-hmm. So I want them when they're adults, you know, I want my kids to be on the cutting edge of AI and robotics and, you know, bit bitcoin, like what whatever mm-hmm. whatever it ends up being, they're gonna use technology and they're gonna need to be really good at it. But ironically, I really do believe that the people who will be best at innovating and, and most savvy at using technology and developing it and being cutting edge. They're going to be the ones who have a healthy brain mm-hmm. and who can think creatively and who can concentrate and focus and not think in one second sound bites and not be constantly in a fight and flight anxious kind of dopamine induced kind of state of being. If we want our kids to be great at tech when they're older, we actually need to teach them to be humans when they're younger, which is the idea of raising humans. Mm-hmm. It's it's not anti-tech but we've got to do it in the right order with the right patterns. Uh, and I very simply, I love driving a car, but I'm not going to give my five-year-old the keys to the car because it's an adult tool <laughs> designed for the adult world. We just need to start thinking the same way about how we grade our kids into tech.
1: Oh, yeah. No, I agree completely. Like To your point, technology is not bad. It's just finding that balance, making our priorities and you know, having that balance and, and learning what's most important and just kind of slowly introducing ourselves to it and utilizing it for its advantages and not getting too sucked up into it to where we kind of don't know how to be human type things. So no, all of that makes a lot of sense. Now you mentioned uh, that book you're currently working on right now. I guess in addition to that, do you have any other upcoming events or projects right now in the works?
0: Yeah, I'm looking forward to some sleep tonight. Uh... (laughs) As am I, yeah. (laughs) No, No, no more no more projects i mean except for the the normal business stuff that i do you know, I'm 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 speaking about my book and still presenting and training and coaching and productivity yeah and this new project one at a time trying to get a new book yeah that's it
1: perfect yeah no that sounds good awesome now is there anything i forgot to ask about that you wanted to touch on before we get into plugins and everything
0: no it's great hopefully it's been useful
1: oh yeah no this has been a great conversation so eye-opening for sure so Now, where can people get more information about yourself, Spacemakers, your book, and anything else you want to plug?
0: Yeah, so look, the book is everywhere. Spacemaker, How to Unplug, Unwind, and Think Clearly in the Digital Age. But I'm available on my website, so spacemakers.com.au. The AU is for Australia. Look, if you're interested in productivity training for your team, you know, using Zoom or MS Teams, if you're interested in you know, my speaking in a different way with your groups, then feel free to contact me or book a 15-minute Zoom conversation.
1: Perfect. Yeah, Daniel, I mean, once again, thank you so much for taking the time for this. And I think you, you dropped some really practical terms that a lot of my listeners could benefit from. I mean, that I could benefit from, honestly, because <laughs> I, I really need to take uh, a lot of these practices more seriously myself. I mean, we live in such a digital world, and I think learning how to unplug from it is something obviously everyone can benefit from. And yeah, I wish you nothing but the best in, in that book you're working on and hopefully get a good night's sleep tonight as, <laughs> as do I. So we can
0: keep yeah. each other accountable. That sounds good, Eric, but uh, <laughs> no, thanks so much for having me on the show. It's, it's been a pleasure and I, I love listening to, to your show and all that you teach us. So thanks very much.
1: Oh, thank you so much. That's really great to hear. Awesome. Well, yeah. Uh, and I know we have quite a difference, uh, in time between us. So I hope you have a good, uh, rest of your day and, um, I guess I will be going to bed in a few hours. (laughs) Sounds good. All right. (laughs) Sounds good. All right. Take care, Daniel. Thank you so much for tuning in and checking out the show. Links to Daniel's book, Space Maker, his website, and other resources we discussed can be found in the show notes. If you like what you heard, please make sure to subscribe and leave a review for Juxtaposed Journeys wherever you stream your podcast, and maybe tell a friend or two about the show. Any feedback is always welcome and appreciated, and it helps the show reach more listeners. It also keeps new episodes coming out. If you're an entrepreneur creator or live an interesting lifestyle take a few minutes to fill out the questionnaire i have linked below if you're a good fit i'll be sure to get in touch with you to be featured on a future episode i just ask that you have some patience as i'm pretty backed up with any of your requests at the moment so thank you to everyone who's reached out and has expressed interest in being on the show the juxtaposed journey's logo was designed by darius norwood the website was designed by elise benner and music has been provided by young pioneer Editing for this episode was done by Kai Will. Final mixing and interviews are conducted by yours truly, Eric Spitz. Thank you for listening, and remember to never stop exploring.